This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Sean Welch. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, Sean, you are referred to me by Jeremy Charlotte. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit because I love that organization. You know of the organization that I speak of. Absolutely. Operation Enduring War is a great organization. Yes. And I cannot wait to get some information from you about your involvement with OEW. But before we get to that part, I like to start at the beginning of the story. Can you share with us a little bit about your story growing up? And what was it that motivated you to join the military? Did you have any family members that were in the military? Yeah, so um, didn't have a rough upbringing. I wasn't looking for a direction in life. The calling that I had when I was a kid, you know, like every Halloween, I was I was that, that kid that dressed up like G.I. Joe. I always wanted to be in the military. So I've got, uh, let's see, my dad, two of my, uh, my dad was Air Force. I got one uncle that was Air Force, another uncle that's a, um, a Navy vet from World War II brother was army i got another brother that was army and air force um so we're all over the place uh which is funny because you know i, I like to be a trendsetter so i wanted to join the marine corps and um when i was 17 and a half like what like the day that i was 17 and a half i went to a marine corps recruiter and i'll, I'll, I'll never forget it was a gunnery sergeant crim was his name and i just walked in and he said how can i help you i said make me a marine and he said that's too easy so we did all the paperwork sat down with my mom you know, 17 and a half, you have to have parental permission. And uh, I, I said, uh, Mom, I said, this is Gunnery Sergeant Krim. And he's dressed to the nines and his dress blues and everything looked like a million bucks. And uh, I said, I want to join the Marine Corps. And uh, she said, why do you want to join that? I said, nobody in my family has been in the Marines. I said, so I want to do my own thing. And uh, she listened to his spiel for about a half hour and just looked at him. when he's like, are you ready to sign? She said, no son of mine is going to be cannon fodder. <laughs> and she looked at me and goes, why don't you join the Air Force like your father? I said, because it's already been done, Mom. So I was able to weasel my way out of that after apologizing to the uh, gunnery sergeant <laughs> and uh, I ended up joining the army. And the only reason why is because oh. uh, my brother, Michael joined the army and that was my leverage. As I said, well, you let Michael join the army. So why can't I? So in uh, April 18th of 2000, I enlisted in the United States army. And uh, that was a week after I turned 18. I went until August of 2013. Um, I had two deployments to Iraq. I started out uh, in army Intel. And I did that for about three years. Uh, no, I'm sorry, four years. And then I swapped over to army aviation and I was a medevac crew chief on Black Hawk helicopters. What was it about the military? Obviously there's the family part of it, but as a young boy, what was it about the military that drew you in? Everything. I mean, I'm 40 now, you know, people, my age, when we were kids, I mean, you either play Cowboys and Indians or you play G.I. Joe. Uh, I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, there was we we didn't know the story of how the West was won because we were we were settled, settled by pilgrims up here. So 
uh, we played GI Joe all the time. And, you know, it was so cool. They had all the guns and the tanks and all this other stuff. And, you know, they looked really cool in their, uh, their camouflage uniforms. And I said, yeah, I, I want to do that. And, uh, actually from a very young age, I, I, I wanted to be in the military. And, uh, you know, I, I talked with my dad a lot about it, even when I was eight, 10 years old, back in the age when you shouldn't be having these conversations with your parents, when they look at you and be like, listen, you're eight years old, be eight years old. I, I talked to my, my, my uncle told me all sorts of war stories about World War II, and I learned about Korea. And uh, even in history class throughout elementary school, I was always more focused on American history as far as combat went um, than I was like, you know, how the West was won, the Battle of the OK Corral. Um, I didn't care. I, I wanted to learn about war history. And uh, I was just, thankfully, uh, I made it through MEPS and everything. And I was I was blessed to be able to be called a soldier. And uh, that's something that will never leave me. I'm, you know, looking back on it, there's a lot of pros and cons to it. But uh, at the end of the day, it's made me who I am today. And it's uh, it's a good career choice for me. And I'm very happy that I did it. I feel kind of bad for your mother. Three sons? So I'm the youngest of seven. So, but three um, of you were in the military or more? Um, yes. Yep. Um, myself, uh, my brother, Harry, and my, my brother, uh, Michael. Um, but I was the only one that went to combat out of the three of them. So, okay. Tell me a little bit about your deployments to Iraq. How long were you there for each deployment? So my first deployment uh, was during the ground war uh, in 2003, 2004. I got deployed, realistically, I got, I got deployed to Kuwait. And we were in Kuwait in February of 03, you know, before the ground war kicked off the end of March. So here's your orders. Like, you know, I, I was at work. I got called up at work because at the time I was a reservist. I was not active duty. And uh, I got called up at work by my dad who said, um, there's a guy, I'm pretty sure he was a general that called looking for you. And I'm, you know, immediately I'm like, oh no, what did I do? Because at the time, you know, I was, I was a private. So obviously I did something wrong. And uh, he said, you should probably come home. I said, oh, okay. So I told my boss, my boss is very cool with it. And I said, something's wrong. I, I don't know what's going on. Something military wise, I have to go home. So I went home and my dad looked at me and, and, you know, cause he was a Vietnam vet. And, uh, he looked at me and said, uh, you need to pack your bags. And I'm like, what, what happened? He said, uh, you've been mobilized. You're, you're heading overseas for war. I will never forget that. That was the day that my life changed. I'll never forget that day. The look on my dad's face. My dad was always a hardworking man, so I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him because he was always at work, and um, we didn't have a tumultuous relationship or anything like that, but we didn't get along. Like, you know, we, did, we didn't play catch in the backyard every day, and you know, but my dad had this look on his face that I've never seen before, and that day, my dad and I had a strong, strong bond that didn't break in, until his passing last year. You know, my dad became my best friend that day. And, uh, you know, throughout my military career, the bond just got stronger and stronger because dad was the guy that I always, uh, you know, I always fell back on. That was, he was my war hero. And, uh, you know, he helped me pack my bags and everything. And he brought me down to the, uh, down to the base because there's no need to bring my vehicle. And, uh, he dropped me off and looked at him and, um, and I said, well, I got to get inside with everybody else. And my dad just looked at me. So whatever happens, just know that I'm very proud of you, even though you didn't join the air force. <laughs> and I'm like, awesome, dad. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I left, you know, we mobilized, we went overseas and our first day in Kuwait, I got my first taste of combat. The first um, day. Yeah. Um, 
So the Iraqi forces were shooting Scud missiles um, into Kuwait. And um, our very first day, you know, you hear the, the sirens going off and everything. And everyone's like, what is that noise? And uh, we look out the tent because we're, we're all in this huge tent where they just kind of pile everybody in, you know, as temporary lodging. And uh, we looked out outside the flap of the tent and just saw everybody just running. And we're like, something's not right. <laughs> if they're running, I guess so, I should be running too. Yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those things of, I, I, I don't know what we're running from, but I feel like this is a good thing to do. And uh, somebody stopped and said, you know, there's a missile launch heading towards our, our base. We need to get to the bunkers. And thankfully, there was a bunker next to our tent. Otherwise, we would have known where to go. And we all piled in there. And uh, you could hear it coming. Like a kid on the 4th of July, I stick, stick my head out from the bunker. And I, I look up and I watch this scud missile shoot right overhead. And I was like, wow, so this is what it's like to be shot at. You know, it, it didn't hit our base. It didn't hit near our base. I believe that missile actually ended up landing in a mall in Kuwait and actually killed a bunch of civilians. But we didn't find that out until days later. And uh, so we just, we hung out trying to acclimate to the weather over there because you don't leave New England in February and go to the desert on the other side of the world um, because it's 20 degrees below zero here and it's 112 degrees Fahrenheit there. We hung out and... Uh, uh, we finally got the order that uh, pack everything up, get everything ready to go, and we need to be heading heading north. And uh, you know, our goal is to hit Baghdad. And we went. Third ID was the they were the locomotive of the train, and they they pretty much cleared the path. But uh, you know, on our way up there, there were still there were still active fighters. I mean, not as much as what Third ID took care of, but there were still active fighters. There were still tanks and stuff were still on fire. Um, you know, and I, I remember driving through and just thinking that this is kind of like what you see on TV. It, it was very surreal to me that, um, like, I'm really here. This is really happening. We convoyed straight up to, uh, to Baghdad, Iraq, and uh, we ended up settling in Camp Victory, which was the uh, Saddam's old presidential palace. Um, it's right next to Baghdad International Airport. It's a triangle area that, that we, uh, we served, and um, part of that was the Abu Ghraib prison. You know, on August 27th of 2003, uh, we lost Sergeant Gregory Bellinger to a um, an IED, but that was back when they were they were tiny. They weren't they weren't full vehicles or anything like that. And that was that was when things really started started to hit home. That like this is the real real world right now. Like we're we may not come home. You know we're we're an intel unit. Like we shouldn't be losing soldiers. Like that's not how it works. And uh, not even a month later, I lost um, a very close friend of mine. We lost two two members, uh, two more members of my unit to a, uh, a mortar attack September 20th of 03 at the Bougaret prison. One of them being uh, Specialist Lunsford Brown, who he and I went to training together. He went active duty, and then my unit got attached to his unit. So we reunited back overseas. And uh, that day um, that we lost, we lost Brown pretty much screwed me up for the rest of my life. Um, I'm, I'm still... I'm still in awe about everything to this day, you know, and we're talking 19, just over 19 years later, you know, it's uh, it, it's an event that plays over and over in my head uh, that I'll never forget. And um, thanks to a friend of mine doing some good research, I located where his grave was. And I actually, I flew down to, uh, to North Carolina the day after his 19th anniversary of his death. And I met his parents and, uh, and, and finally got to see, see his grave and kind of get some closure. Were you there with him the day that he died? Yeah. So you saw what happened? Uh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And it haunts you. When we were overseas, you know, I, I turned, I turned 21 over there and uh, he died at the age of 27 and he left a career as a correctional officer. He was married. And uh, while he was deployed, while we were in Iraq, uh, his wife gave birth to their daughter, his only child. And he never got to see her, never got to hold her. Like he had a picture of her, but he never got to hold her or anything like that. And um, this is survivor's guilt that really, really eats me up because at the time I still lived with my parents. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't have a family. I didn't, I didn't have a girlfriend or a fiance. I had no kids, you know? So even to this day, I, I still feel like I, I should have, I should be in his place, not him. I, I try to make the best of every day that I can and, and hopefully change people's lives for the better as much as I can, you know, because I, I have the gift of the continuation of life that he did not have. But yeah, that, that incident, that, that tore me apart. So it's not so much about what you saw, but just that he was not going to be able to have the things that you have now and that you did not have a wife. You did not have a child dependent on you. And why does the universe work that way? Yeah, it's 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 one of those things that especially for the first year, you know, even overseas, I'd, I'd cry myself to sleep. Just life's not fair. This is not fair. I was a strong believer in God. You know, I, I went to church every Sunday with the family, you know, but something like this. Why, why does God do things the way he does that, you know, that those are the thoughts that were going through my mind. Why is it him and not me? What's my purpose? You know, he had a family, he had a life. I mean, his brother was a, uh, was a pro NFL football player. Like, you know, he came from a good, strong Southern family. Not that I didn't have a good upbringing or I didn't have family to go home to, but that should have been my fate, not his. And, and was and, that uh, all because of what he had, or did you feel like he was a better person than you? Both actually. Both. I mean, he he left a career to join the military, active duty, like gave everything up to be a soldier. I, I was like playing G.I. Joe's as a kid was pretty cool. And now I get to do it in real life. Like that was that was me. You know, he. he uh, it, it, it's, it's hard to explain. He was just a good person. He had a, he was a great soldier. He had a purpose. Absolutely. And he had that, something to go home to. How long was your was, first deployment? Total deployment was about 16 months. For the first one, it was 16 months? Pretty close to it, yeah. Wow, yeah. that's a long deployment. Yeah, I was I was gone from home for about a year and a half. I mean, I got to come home for two weeks uh, in between. Yeah, I was I was gone for a long time. And then, um, like I said, I swapped careers. Part of the reason why I went into Army Aviation is uh, here in New Hampshire, we've got a National Guard unit um, that's aviation, it's medevac. And um, I wanted to join that because I, I wanted the ability to try to help other soldiers that may not have a chance at life unless they get medevaced out, you know, like our situation was back in 2003. And um, I felt that that's, that's where I needed to be. And uh, to this day, that was my favorite job I've ever had. It's not every day you, you get to fly around in, in cool helicopters. You know, every time you, every time you fly over, you know, houses, you know, people are looking up going, Oh, that's so cool. And it's like, yeah, this is, this is my life. I, I just fly around in helicopters. <laughs> it's funny too. You get the infantry guys that sit there and puff their chest and they're like, oh, you know, infantry is, you know, we win battles and everything like that. And it's like, yep, yeah, you sure do. I said, but there's no sound that you guys like more than if you guys are injured and you hear the helicopter coming in, you know, you're going to be okay. We're here for you. So, you know, it's a little, little tip for tag going, going back and forth. How long after your first deployment did you leave again? And when you left again for your second deployment, because of what had happened in your first 
what were your feelings? Were you very anxious? Were you afraid? Was there trepidation? So I I came to terms with, with life in 2003 when everything was going on, when we lost other soldiers and everything. I was like, you know, you don't know what your fate is. And through therapists and stuff like that, talking to people much wiser than I, um, you don't know what your fate is. So why should you dwell on it? Why should, why should you hinder your, your life's momentum based on this? So what I did is I said, how can I make things better for other people? So I went into the medevac world. Like I said, we got home in 2004 from the first deployment. I didn't deploy until 2009, my second deployment. Oh, wow. That's a huge space. Yeah. Yep. Um, because when I was home, by the time I was, I was home for about a year before I was able to transition from Army Reserves to Army Guard. And by the time I made that transition, the unit that I was assigned to was deployed. So they came home. I jumped in with the unit. Um, and then their next rotation came up in 2009. When that came up and I found out that we were deploying again, I was like, been there and done that. I'm not, I'm not too concerned about it. Maybe this is going to be my time. And I just kind of kept it in the back of my head that uh, if something happens to me overseas and, and, you know, I come home in a box, hopefully I save as many people as I can so that they have a chance at doing something better with their lives. We flew quite a few missions when we were over there. And there were a couple of times that we were called to go, you know, to where an IED blast happened or something like that. And we had talked about it as a crew because you make a decision as a crew between the two pilots, the crew chief and the, uh, the flight medic. Um, are we going to make this flight? Are, are we going to land? Is there, you know, there's a potential that we could be landing under fire or there could be more explosions or explosive devices. Um, is this what we want to risk? And my answer was always absolutely yes. Because I'm, I'm willing to risk a, a $5 million helicopter in my life for four or five other guys that might be bleeding out or missing limbs or something like that. Give them a chance to go home to their families. Because um, you can replace a helicopter but you, you can't replace, you know, a soldier. You can't. Can you explain those feelings for those of us who have not even come close to doing anything like that? What it feels as you're on that helicopter and you're headed into something and you're not sure what you're going to find. You look like a, like an NFL quarterback, Tom Brady, only because I'm a new England guy, Tom Brady. This guy, played football growing up, just like I played G.I. Joe's growing up. He went on and played football as a career. I went into the military, no, no different. He makes it to the Super Bowl. I make it to combat. So that's how I equate everything. He takes the field as a starting quarterback, and there's millions of people watching him. Like him, he's the guy with the ball. Everyone's watching this guy, and all the pressure is on him. But what he does is he just focuses on the game. I have to make the next pass. I have to take the next snap. My whole thing was I have to make it to the next mission. So when, you know, we're on call, when we're on what's called an up status. So when we're on call to fly one of these missions, when the mission comes in, I instantly go to, well, I need to get my flight gear, you know, head out to the helicopter, get my gear on, get the, you know, get the helicopter ready to spool up for when the pilots come out, help the medic, make sure he's got his gear. Um, you know, we have like a checklist that we go down and then I look at it as we're just doing another flight. I'm just doing another flight. A lot of the flights we did were just routine flights. Somebody needed a high le higher level of care. So we landed at a, at a local 
cash, a, a local little hospital, and brought them to a higher level of care or brought them to a major airport so that they could be flown up, to, you know, up to Germany. But there were times that we went to uh, areas that people were shot or, you know, people were uh, blown up. And all I do is focus on getting the helicopter spooled up and ready to go. When we're in flight, um, I do fuel management, all the other fun stuff that like your, your car does on a regular basis. These really multi-million dollar aircraft, they don't do that. That's me. I just focus on how much fuel we have, how far we can go, making sure that the weight distribution in the helicopter is fine. I focus on every single little thing until, you know, mission complete. And then, then it's the dump. Then it's like, wow, like that was, that was crazy. Um, but I don't, I don't focus on the grand picture of everything until it's over and done with worrying about, are we going to make it there? What if we crash on the way? What if we get shot down? I don't even worry about that because it's one of those things of if it happens, it happens. But right now my goal is to get this mission complete by doing my job. So the pilots can do their job and the medic can do their job so that this soldier or the civilian can get home safely. Some of the things that you witnessed, I'm sure were horrific. And for me, I have a squeamish stomach and the thought of some of the things that you witnessed. Do you just learn how to phase that out and just concentrate on the task at hand? And especially this person that's suffering? Yeah, I mean, there, there are times that that happens. Long story short, uh, I don't do needles very well, and I definitely don't do my own blood very well. I get that from my dad. Uh, my dad would cut his cut his finger open or whatever, and his face would just turn pale. Um, and, and this is what you choose to do, Sean. Someone's got to do it. Oh my goodness! Someone's got to do. It. There's a higher calling than me. There's a bigger picture than me. And yeah, there were uh, there there were times that you know there were people on there missing limbs. Uh, there were people that, uh, you know, had bullet holes. There was all, all sorts of stuff, but it wasn't about me. It was about that person in my helicopter. So I didn't care. But the one thing I will tell you is that every time the medic is like, I, I need to start an IV. It was literally, I would just kind of turn and look out the window real quick and be like, let me know when you're done. Otherwise you're going to have two patients because I will pass out. You see somebody missing a leg, you can handle that. But as soon as they stick the IV in the arm. You might be gone. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yep. Not might be. I probably will be. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, Sean, I don't have very good veins in my arm and it's really hard. to. And I tell them straight up, I say, you have two chances after that. I am out of here. You better be good at your job. Yeah. Yeah. My, mine's the same way, but you have one chance. <laughs> I've got really good veins. If you miss that one. Uh, well, you're lucky. You probably shouldn't be a phlebotomist. Feel blessed you have good veins because I don't. It's always the worst part of whatever I'm doing. How long then were you in the military and why did you retire? So I was in the military for 13 years. And um, when I got home in 2004, uh, a year later, I, I met my wife and uh, we married in 2006. And when I left for my last deployment, I had a daughter and she was four months old when I left. And... When, when I found out we were deploying, um, obviously, all, all I could think about was Brown. He had a daughter. He didn't get a chance to hold her. Um, so she was my motivation to come home. And 2013, I was coming up towards uh, the end of my, my current contract. And uh, I had tried for a little while to get deployed out to Afghanistan. So I, I wanted, I knew that they needed medevac units out in Afghanistan. So I tried to get attached to another unit to go out there. 
and I kept getting shot down. Um, my, my unit wouldn't let me, they wouldn't release me to go to another unit. So I was pretty bummed about it. And, uh, my wife tells me, uh, we're pregnant with number two, uh, which is my son. And, uh, a couple weeks after that, uh, I got orders that uh, we're going to Afghanistan. And so they talked to me, you know, the retention guy talked to me about, are you going to reenlist and come with us or what are you going to do? I did the math and the math for me was, um, my son would have been born, uh, I think it was four and a half, almost five months into my deployment, which is the same thing with Brown. And I started putting the, the puzzle together and said, no, I'm, I'm out. I, 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 I can't do it because I don't think that mentally I would have been in a good spot to be over there. And I wouldn't have been good to the rest of the guys in my unit. I definitely would have been good to the people that needed me the most. So I figured I was going to take a break, spend some time with my son for the first year, that type of thing and get back in. But, uh, here we are almost 10 years later, still a civilian and, uh, I'm okay with it. You know, I could have been retired by now, but I'm, I'm okay. You know, I, I I did 13 years. That's, that's a pretty good run. I did my time. You mentioned Brown. Are there any other people that really impacted you that really have had an effect on your life as well in the military? Shoot. Yeah. Um, so that same deployment, uh, in 2003, my platoon sergeant, uh, staff sergeant, Christopher Aker, um, really really good dude and i learned a lot from him a lot not just about being a soldier but about about being a man about being a person and a lot of the stuff that he taught me back then still resonates with me today and the funny thing is is that um like i said i I was a part-time soldier i didn't have a full-time army career and uh when we got home in 2004 uh, a couple months later i went to the police academy up here in new hampshire and I was a police officer for about a year or so. And my staff sergeant came to me and said, tell me about being a police officer. Like, you know, I, I've been, I've been thinking about it. So I talked to him about it. And, uh, I think he's, he's probably, he's gotta be coming up on 17 years or so as a police officer now. So I was able to give back to him. Um, probably not anywhere near as much as he gave to me, but, uh, I learned so much from him about, you know, military bearing honor, respect, all that stuff. He was only a few years older than I am, but he was like a second dad to me. What do you think the military taught you? Life is short. Life is short. Your time to go could be any time. You know, embrace what you have, enjoy what you have now. And uh, on top of that, America, especially right now, America's divided. There's, there's a lot of issues here in, in our own country. Some of these people that I've seen, I, I, don't, I don't mean to get on a political soapbox here, but some of the people that are throwing fits here about different policies and stuff like that, about this isn't fair, that's not fair. Go out to some of those countries. Tell me what's not fair. You know, there, there are people out there that are just in fear of leaving their house because they will get slaughtered. They will be killed. And it's not someone's going to shoot them in the head or whatever. Like they'll stone them to death. They'll drag them through the streets. It's vicious over there. It's not just out in the deserts of, of Iraq or anything like that. There's tons of other countries that, They've got a lot of problems for people. I mean, you look at our Southwest border, those people aren't coming over here because we've got, we've got greener grass or, you know, gas prices are cheaper. They don't want to die over there. They don't want to live under the regime of some sort of mafia or corrupt political system. They want to come here for freedom. 
And we have that. We provide that. There are many of us, even though it's it's only about 1% of us that defend that. And, uh, you know, when, when you look at how bad things are here, um, it's nowhere near how bad it is in probably 90% of the rest of the world. So that's that's some of the stuff that the military has really instilled in me is that as bad as you think things may be right now, today, tomorrow, last week, there are people out there that are much, much worse off than we are. Forgive my French, but I believe that a lot of us bitch and moan about the stupidest things because we don't have anything to bitch and moan about. Exactly. I imagine from what you have shared so far that PTSD is something that you deal with. Yeah, and if uh, if you don't mind me... Um... If you don't mind me correcting you, you can just drop the D on there. Okay, I'm never stress. sure because some people like to say PTSD. Some like to say PTS. It's yes. it's common as PTSD. That's how everybody knows it, but it's not a disorder. We're, you know, we're not dysfunctional people. Um, a lot of us, especially military veterans, uh, first responders that have post-traumatic stress, you know, that that's our way of life now. It's, uh, it's a very real thing. And um, for those that listen to your podcast that, you know, never served in the military or are not first responders, you guys are not immune from it either. Everybody is 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 susceptible to post-traumatic stress in one form or another. And the best examples I can give is that most of us have seen a car crash, whether it was a fender bender or a rollover or something like that. Every time you drive by that, that street or that intersection, you remember that crash. That's a, a version of post-traumatic stress. That's a very light version of it. Um, you know, there are violent assault victims, rape victims, that they live with post-traumatic stress on a much higher scale than somebody that just saw a fender bender. Um, but where we are all different, we all act and react differently. You know, there's Navy SEALs and Green Berets out there that have seen, I can't even tell you how much combat. And they've got a version of post-traumatic stress, but they handle it a little bit better. Not all of them, obviously, um, but they handle it a little bit better than the, I guess the the less combat effective soldier, you know, um, a cook or something like that. You know, your your job is to is to cook, although it's one of the most important jobs in the military. You know, you Everybody don't spend a lot of time outside food. the wire. Yeah, there are two people in the military you never piss off. That's your cook <laughs> and your supply guy. Ever. Um, they have a lot of power. But you know, oh, lots of power. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you don't. Uh, leave the wire a lot they don't go out outside you know they're what what some people call like a fobbit you know they, they they live on the base that's it they never see outside the wire but one mortar attack or you know something like that could really screw them up you know where some of these really hardened combat veterans you know um, some of the seals and stuff um it doesn't affect them the same way um everybody's susceptible to it um it's just a matter of how you deal with it and sometimes it gets to the point that you can't deal with it anymore. And that's why uh, we lose um, an average of 22 veterans a day. When did you become aware that something was not right? How does your PTS manifest itself? Mm -hmm. And how do you deal with it? I kind of became aware of it probably within a year of me coming home the first time. Because my mom actually brought it to my attention. And she just... Uh, my, my mom's, she grew up in Indianapolis. So, um, you know, she's, she's very blunt to the point with everything. She doesn't sugarcoat anything. And she just flat out told me, she said, you're not the same son that left. So what are you talking about? She said, you get angry a lot easier now. 
and you used to be very outgoing and bubbly. You would talk to everybody and anybody, and um, you don't seem to be as outgoing anymore. You're more of a recluse than you used to be. Um, she said, there's a lot of changes, but you are not the son that left. I don't know. Mom. Maybe it's just me transitioning back into being a civilian again. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, and I had no idea. And, you know, at the time, it was one of those things that post-traumatic stress wasn't really, I mean, it was a thing because, you know, you've got shell shock and, you know, thousand yard stare, all that other stuff. Well, they finally put a name to it and they started listing all these different symptoms and everything as to what exactly is post-traumatic stress disorder at the time. And I went, okay, got that, got that. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. Not that. I do have that. And I, and I started going down this checklist and I was like, huh, I guess it's possible. And then I started talking with people. I started talking with other veterans. And that was about the time that, that I learned like, yeah, I'm, I'm affected, you know, in, in one way or another, I was never officially diagnosed at the time with post-traumatic stress, but I, I should probably talk to somebody because something's not right about this. And uh, I ended up going to the VA and, and they diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress and, and all that other fun stuff. But my post-traumatic stress, I, I get uh, certain sights, smells, sounds, uh, they all trigger me. Um, you know, there are times I'll just be driving down the road and, you know, I can smell an 18 wheeler that's, that's, um, that's idling. You can just smell that diesel smell. You know, the first deployment I went on, everything ran off the diesel generators. So as soon as I smell the diesel, I think about the generators. There are other smells. There are different sounds, you know, not, not just, uh, not just like the booms or the gunshots or anything like that, but there are different sounds that were significant overseas that every so often would just trigger me and I and you know um only one time only one time so far in my life um did I ever hit the dirt so to speak and that was right in the middle of a parking lot at Walmart um our local Walmart they were building a um building a strip mall next door and so I live in New Hampshire and New Hampshire is known as the granite state because everything is granite here so they were blasting over there and I never heard the whistles or the horns and I heard you know the woof and I felt it in the ground and I'm just pushing a cart with my family, the car. And I felt that and I instantly started to drop to the ground, but midair in the middle of the parking lot, I'm like, you're an idiot. Like, you, you know that it's not what you think it is. So I tried to play it off like I tripped and my wife, God bless her. She, um, she waited until we got in the car and uh, you know, my daughter is really young. I didn't have my son at the time. Um, so it was just us in the car realistically. And, uh, she looked at me and she goes, uh, you all right. I said, yeah, because I just tripped over my shoelace back there. And she goes, <laughs> you didn't trip. I just want to make sure you're okay. And I, I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. What does that feel like when it hits? Is it just panic? Is it confusion? What is it? It's a little bit of everything. Cause you know, you get the confusion, but the confusion is I'm home. Like I'm in America, but then you start thinking back, you know, us old people, we remember 9-11 like it was yesterday, you know, and the people that were before us remember Pearl Harbor like it was yesterday. We haven't really fought combat here on American soil um, against a foreign enemy since the Revolutionary War. Like, we don't just get attacked. You know, there's no ground troops. Nobody's launching mortars or, or rockets at us right now. And, you know, but you think there's still that possibility. There's always that possibility. So it's, it's kind of one of those things that you start thinking about, okay, there's a possibility it could be it. I'm going to resort back to my training 
And then there's that, that panic where, you know, there, there's like, oh no, like here's this sound, here's this feeling. This is how you're supposed to react because that's how you stay alive. And so when your fight or flight kicks in, you immediately, you go into combat mode. Like you just, you do what you have to do to survive. It's that muscle and memory. That, yeah, that's what I did is I just, I dropped to the ground and, and I immediately like jumped right back up. Cause like I said, half, halfway to the ground, I was like, you're a moron. Um, <laughs> but I, I jumped right back up and, and Were you just kind of like myself off. Were you looking uh, around just no. make sure nobody was there or you just hurried and got in the car? <laughs> I, I just, I was like, let's, let's, let's go. Like <laughs> I just tried to play it off and I just focused on getting to the car. I'm like, I, I don't want, I don't want to turn around and see people pointing at me and everything. I was embarrassed. And it would, I think it would have been devastating to me if I looked around and people were like laughing at me or something because they don't know what's going on with me. So I, I just, I, I focused like, let's just get to the car, get, get the groceries in the car, whatever we were getting and just get out of here. Do you have nightmares? Yeah. Yeah. And is it up most that nights, day? Um, mostly, mostly. Um, it's a lot of things like I, I even have. I even have dreams where, you know, they're not really nightmares. Um, but like the incident will reoccur, but he's still here. Those are really, really depressing because I know it's not true. Some of them are so vivid that I'll, I'll wake up and I'll be like, oh, I should call him. I mean, I never had his phone number. You know, like cell phones weren't like they were very new for everybody to have them back in 2003. It wasn't, it wasn't like it is now where, you know, every five-year-old kid's got a cell phone. I'll wake up and be like, oh man, like when did I talk to him last? And I was like, oh, that's right. September, 2003. And then you just sink into this depression. You know, there, there are times that um, my wife has woke me up in the middle of the night because I'm sweating and screaming and tossing and turning. And uh, she learned very, very early on in, in, uh, in our marriage that um, don't just shake me. <laughs> Um, like, like uh, if anybody's ever seen the movie Step Brothers, when they're sleepwalking and they're putting stuff in the, they're putting pillows in the oven, and they're like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll wake them. No, you never wake somebody that's sleepwalking. And they try to wake them, and they panic and throw everything and scream and yell. She's like, yeah, you pretty much do that. And so she just kind of she she pokes me with a stick. She pokes <laughs> got, you with she a, a stick. She a little broom handle. Yeah, she got a broom handle. Yeah, or she'll she'll try to call my name uh, from a distance. Well, does it make you fearful to go to sleep? Sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, th thankfully, uh, being the way I am, I, I suffer from insomnia too. So um, sometimes sleep is hard to come by. So. And does that make it worse when you're exhausted? Sometimes. Sometimes, but it's just, it's become the norm. Are all of your PTS experiences do they just come on like quick and there it is? Or I've spoken to a few veterans who they can feel when one is coming on. Do you have both mm -hmm. of those? Yeah. Um, and when they do come on out of nowhere, like it's not one of those things, you know, where I, I go into, you know, an, an episode or something like that. And it lasts for hours or something like that. It's usually a fraction of a second. It's like, as if somebody holds up a cue card, just real fast, just, all right, what did you see? It's like that. It just comes and goes. Um, like there, there are times actually there was a earlier, earlier today, actually I was, I was running an, an errand and, um, I caught an odor and it's like, I was there and then I was back home, like pff, fraction of a second. And that happens. I can't even tell you how many times a day. 
Well, before we discuss how you deal with your PTS, I want to move mm-hmm. on to your career as a police officer. For some reason, it seems like such a natural transition for you military people. Why mm-hmm. is that? Simple. The camaraderie, for one. When you're in the military, you got Joes that you hang out with. Like It's very clicky. You know, you, your unit is the best unit in the whole wide world. Don't everybody, <laughs> let, you know, don't let anybody tell you different. Um, but you guys build a strong bond together. And, uh, you know, if you, if you transition to a different unit, you're the new guy. And so you've got to try to find your way to fit in there. So it's, it's you build up this camaraderie. And um, when you get out of the military, it's gone. Like, as soon as, as, soon as you get that, that fantastic DD-214 and you're like, yes, freedom you'll find that a lot of military are police officers or firefighters. And a lot of it is the camaraderie, you know, firefighters take some of these, uh, these big city fire trucks where you've got four or five guys on a truck and they're on your shift. Like those are your, those are your guys, you know, um, uh, big agents, big police agencies, your shift, like everybody knows everybody in that shift, you know, everybody's coming to your kids' birthday parties. You have that bond with them that people can't take away that other people will not understand. Because you guys go through a lot of stuff together. Um, so we look for that camaraderie. And on top of that, there's the sense of danger, especially for those of us that have been deployed. Um, you kind of get a taste of that adrenaline and you're like, you know, I, I, I want that again. And actually, one of my therapists, she had told me that uh, what she equated to is that uh, that feeling of um, living, living on the edge of death is kind of where we are at doing extreme sports, whether it's, uh, you know, base jumping or jumping out of airplanes for some reason, or, you know, there's that, that really strong risk of death that kind of excites us a little bit. You know, it makes you feel alive. If you're in a firefight and people are shooting all around you and everything and you, there's bullet holes landing behind your head or whatever, you're like, Oh my God, like that was close. It's the same thing for like, a civilian driving down the street and, you know, all of a sudden a deer jumps out in front of you, you lock your brakes up and your, your heart is just racing and your, your hands are trembling and you're like, wow. Like I, I just, you know, I just avoided a collision. Like, whew. And then, but instantly you're like, that was pretty close, huh? Been different if you would vehicle or hit, hit the, the moose or the deer, or whatever jumped out in front of you, it's a different emotion. But to know that you narrowly avoided that situation, you know, you, you, you kind of like, whoo kind of smile a little bit. You're like, oh, that could have been bad. The only difference is, Sean, is that most of us don't want that to happen again. We don't want that feeling. And I think that's what separates you apart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I, I hate to say it, and some people may agree, some people may not. There's nothing like living on the verge of death to realize that you're alive. Your wife probably wouldn't want to hear you say that. Yeah, my wife's not here, so thank you. Okay. <laughs> but um, you know that that's that's why you know some people think we're crazy. There are many Marines, sailors, soldiers, airmen that volunteer to go back overseas because they want that. Sorry, it starts to become an addiction. Had you thought of joining the police force before, or was it not till after the military, and then you thought this will be a perfect fit for me for what I need. I always thought when I was a kid that if I didn't make it in the military, I, I wanted to be a police officer. And a lot of the reason was um, 
my dad got pulled over by a state trooper because I saw a limo for the first time and told my dad, hey, go catch up to that car. That's really cool. I want to see it. So my dad, being a good dad, said, okay, son. And he stomped on the gas pedal. And next thing you know, woo. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And this trooper gets out and he's a huge man. I mean, just built like a gorilla. And he's got his hat on and everything. And he comes strolling up. And I just remember just being in awe. And I, I was like, I asked him a million questions. I don't I didn't actually think that he actually got my dad's driver's license. I wouldn't shut up. I just kept asking him questions. And, you know, he was telling me like, oh, you know, yeah, I'm a state trooper. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a policeman. Um, I have a canine partner and everything. And I was like, that is the coolest thing in the whole wide world. And, um, you know, he had this big smile and, and was like, all right, you know, he's like, you be good to your parents and everything. And he left. That's all I remember from the whole car stop. I couldn't, I like, I know we were on I-93 in New Hampshire. Couldn't tell you where. I couldn't even tell you how old I was at the time, but I was about six years old. And it was one of my first memories. And, uh, the guy made my day so later on that my, my dad told me that, uh, yeah, you, you got me out of a speeding ticket, but, uh, he said I should have got one. <laughs> when you joined the police force, did you go in immediately with the intention of becoming a canine officer? Can you do that immediately? Or is it something you have to earn? going to earn it. I wanted to become a canine, eventually either canine or SWAT. That's what I wanted to do. Cause again, SWAT, you're at all the, the heavy calls. And um, for a while I learned, like, I didn't really want to do SWAT. Like I like doing patrol work. I like being out, talking to people, meeting people, helping people and having a dog, I think would be really, really cool, you know, because you have a skill that not a lot of other people have to be able to bond with this creature and go off of each other's basic natural instincts to become this solid team to find bad guys, find missing kids, find drugs, find explosives. Um, so many different jobs that a dog can do. And uh, I thought that was really, really cool. And I was, I was very, very interested in how that whole thing worked. And um, so I, I became a police officer in 2004 and it wasn't in, until um, a year and a half ago, it finally came true for me. And, uh, and I, got, I got my canine partner, canine Pharaoh. He does narcotics detection for uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, heroin, and fentanyl. And uh, he does um, article searches. So if someone burglarizes a home and throws a throws a crowbar, for instance, into a field, uh, he'll find it. Um, he does tracking. So those are what we're what we're certified with. And uh, you know we train every day. And he's he's my he's my new best friend. And it's it's the coolest job in the whole wide world. It's not everybody gets gets to partake and take your dog to work day every day. Does Farrell work with you only or with other officers as well? Just me. He lives with me. He goes to work with me. Like he's okay. downstairs right now. And do you trust him with your life? Yeah. And uh, I know that he trusts, trusts me with, you know, with, with his, I mean, if somebody tries to hurt him or whatever, absolutely not. I'm not going to allow it to happen. And if there's calls out there that, like, if there's an active shooter situation or whatever, I'm not going to send my dog in there. Yeah, I mean, depends on circumstances. But I, I wouldn't knowingly risk my dog's life if it wasn't necessary. The same with mine. I wouldn't knowingly risk my, my life unless it was necessary. What makes Farrell different as a partner if Farrell were a human? Farrell keeps good secrets. 
<laughs> you can depend on him not to tell anybody. Absolutely. If I end up doing something dumb or saying something stupid or whatever, he's not going to tell anybody. You know, um, if I'm driving down the street and I spill my coffee on my lap, he's not going to tell anybody. <laughs> and are you hoping to retire with Farrell? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. At the, at the end of his career, I'll be able to purchase him for a dollar from, from my, uh, my town. And uh, he can live out his final days here with me. What do you think is the best part about your career as a police officer? And what is the worst part? Best part about my my career is being able to help people um, when they feel like, you know, there's no hope left. There are certain situations and every, every family's had them. There are certain situations that um, things get out of control and you can control them to a point and you do. But when it gets out of control to the point that you don't know what to do, call us. And it doesn't matter if you like us or if you hate us, if you support us or if you don't, if you call, we will show up. And we will do our best to help you, you know, with, with whatever you need. Um, if it's a matter of, you know, the, the guy broke into your house and you want us to come and arrest him because you're in fear of your life, we'll go into your house and we'll take him into custody one way or another. If your kid is very young and acting up and is stealing stuff from school or whatever, and you want a police officer to talk about what the laws are like and, you know, you think things are hard now, like, you know, when you're an adult, you've got all these laws you have to follow. You can't do this. This is not a, not appropriate. People call us. Where, where I work, there's summer homes and there's tons of alarms and stuff that go off all the time. They're, they're not full-time houses. And people are like, oh, the alarm's going off next door. I'm not going to go check it out. Okay, we'll go check it out. That's what we do every day, every single day. There's a police officer out there that knowingly walks in, into a situation thinking, this is it. This is it for me. But this is my job. This is my calling. This is my duty. I actually enjoy that part of, of, of my job is um, being somebody that people can depend on. And the worst part of the job for me is dealing with loss, uh, a loss of a loved one. Um, the hardest calls I ever have to do is to deliver like a death notification. You knock on the door of somebody's house and they answer the door and they're like, hi, can I help you? You know, they were just sitting down to have dinner. Everything's going good. Had a good day at work. And you're like, yeah, do you have a minute? And they're like, yeah, you know, what's up? And then you're like, you know, listen, I just want to let you know they saw your daughter, your husband, your wife, uh, your brother, sister, mom, father, they passed away. And you just watch the joy drain from their face. There is nothing, nothing more brutal than seeing that. Unfortunately, over the last few years, there has been quite a shift on how the public see police officers. You don't see as many kids hmm. dressed up as police officers for Halloween or for make-believe, nope. what have you. How has that impacted your job? significantly i mean you take almost any agency out here around the country everybody's short-staffed you know the officers that are still there are working mandatory overtime shifts because they don't have the staffing but they have an obligation to your community to be there when when you call no matter what like i said whether you support us or you don't but there are officers out there that are stuck doing 12 16 hour shifts which is taking time away from their family, 
that they'd like to spend time with. You know, vacations are going denied because we don't have the staffing coverage. The whole defund the police thing, it's a stupid idea. You know, why not give us a little bit more money? And I understand there's a tax impact and everything, but why not spend just a, a, an extra dollar per household will be a significant impact in a training budget at a local police department. Like I, for instance, um, through uh, an organization called the Hidden Battles Foundation, um, I was able to put myself through what's called SISM training, which is uh, critical incident support management. So I went through that so that, um, you know, if there were people in crisis, I know how to handle it. You know, I, I don't have to have a social worker riding around with me in my car to look at somebody and go, well, how does that make you feel? I've gone through the training. This training is being put on around the country. There are, you know, CIT certified uh, officers all over the country. They're there that they can help out with mental health stuff. They can help out with somebody's actively being assaulted. They can do it all. And it's a huge burden on every police officer to keep stacking on this training and, and more training, more training. But what it comes down to is your local barber has more training annually than a police officer does. That's scary. That's what's wrong. Not that every police officer wants to wants to be put to death by PowerPoint, but um, <laughs> there is so much more training that we can have. And the thing that people don't realize is some of this high quality, good training, you got to pay somebody to do it. It's not all free. But that there's there is training out there as, as an agency. If there's any um, executive leadership that will listen to this, first off, there has to be an officer that's willing to do it. Someone's being being voluntold to go do this. It's not they're not going to put their heart and soul into it. But there's a lot of cops out there that really care about the people and they really care about their job. That I'm sure will step up if this is offered. Um, not only will it help your community, but also impact your agency um, as a whole. Especially if you need to do a critical incident debrief and you need to ch check and make sure your guys are okay. Because although veteran suicide is high, so is law enforcement suicide. I think I think we're we're at a point now where um, law enforcement is killing, killing more of themselves than bad guys are killing cops. Wow. And um, a lot of this exhaustion, physical and mental exhaustion from being overworked all the time, it is, um, it's really starting to take its toll. Do you ever feel like I'll just walk away? Yeah, quite a few times. I can't do a nine to five job. You know, I, I, I can't, I can't go work at an office. I can't do it. Uh, it, it's not for me. You know, if, if someone's in need of help, that's where my calling is, is to, is to be able to help people. That's, I've based my whole life on it. That's all I know. That's all I've ever done. I'm 40 at this point. You know, for me to just change tactics and say, you know what? I'm going to be a pastry chef. Producer. I'm just going to, yeah, I'm, yeah, exactly. I, I'm, I'm lucky if I can cook stuff in a microwave. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't, I can't cook toast for crying out loud, you know, but it's like people got to eat. So why, why not? And I'll go and I'll hate it. Just not in my DNA. Are you proud to be a police officer? Every day, every day. I'm, I'm also, I'm also a big advocate at this point about mental health and law enforcement. Um, back in the day when I first started, even, you know, even in the early two thousands, it was one of those things that if you went to one of those calls, it was just absolute hell those salty old patrol sergeants look at you and go, eh, go home, have a bottle of Jack Daniels. We'll see you tomorrow. Brush it off. Nobody ever spoke up about, you know, I don't feel right because what's going to happen is the town or the city is going to look at you as 
you're now a liability. We gave you a gun. You may end up executing yourself or, or whatever. Um, so nobody ever spoke up about it. And there, there were administrations that would, would pretty much shut you down as soon as you're like, Hey, something's not right. You know, I should probably go get an evaluation or something like that. Maybe get, get on some meds. Boom. It's been great having you work for us, turn your stuff in or don't turn it in. We'll come and get it immediately because they didn't want that liability. And, you know, for a while there was, there was lists out there. Like there's, there's what a lot of people know is like the liars list, you know, cops that are untruthful. You go on this list so that you can't, you can't have expert testimony in court, that type of thing, because you're a known liar. So it's not going to suck a fly in court. There's also a list for people that were, um, you know, mental health risks. Thankfully, that stigma is starting to slowly go away. But that's kind of what I'm advocating for at this point in my life and at this point in my career that um, I don't care if it ends my career. You know, I speak out about my mental, my, my mental health and, um, you know, I, I look after a lot of the cops that are around me. I'll, I'll call them up after a rough call or something and just check in. Are you OK? Do you need to talk with somebody? Is there something I can do? Um, and sometimes, you know, just being an ear for them makes a huge difference. You know, because you never know. There's a lot of officers out there that will come into work and find out that, oh, you know, Smith took his life last night. And people go, I don't think I saw that coming. Like, he never told me anything about it. Or some people look at it and go, now that it's happened, I can kind of see where they were going down that path. I totally missed it. It's on me. It's my fault. Um, and that's not always the case. You know, sometimes before people end up ending their own lives, their mind was made up a long time before it even happened. Let's talk about PTS mm -hmm. and OEW. So last year, I became an official honoree of the Operation Enduring Warrior. And um, so I, I have, uh, I've got a TikTok following, um, me and my dog. And um, I met another New Hampshire police officer on there. And he goes by the handle of Polly Paul. Um, his name is Paul Lewis. Paul Lewis was uh, in his first year as a police officer, was shot in the line of duty and had to medically retire. He was shot twice in, in his in his gun hand, in his right hand. This is a few years ago, and he is still trying to recover from it. And um, Paulie and I had linked up. We became friends. And he's the one that actually told me about OEW. And um, it was the same thing for me with OEW as it was for like the VA is you know, I've got post-traumatic stress and everything. You know, there are veterans out there that are missing arms or legs. Like they need disability or whatever. Like they, you know, they've got one leg, they've got one arm um, or none of them, or they've been burned 90% of their body. Um, and it's the same thing with OEW is OEW supports veterans and first responders that have physical and mental ailments, I guess is the best way to put it. But they still have dreams and aspirations of stuff they want to do. They are notorious for doing like, Spartan races with amputees and everything. They have what's called a masked athlete. And the masked athlete um, wears a mask because it limits the amount of air that they can take in. So it's it's kind of their, it's their missing leg. It's their missing arm. That's their crutch. But at the same time, you don't see their faces. They don't wear name tapes. None of that. Um, because they don't want to be remembered. They want the focus to be on the honoree. And um, this nice gentleman is a retired cop out of California by the name of Chris Johnson, CJ, as we call him. I linked up with him and because Paulie had put in a good word for me. And he's like, what do you want to do? You know, they pay for everything. You know, if I wanted to go skydiving in Utah, they'll fly me out to Utah and set me up with skydiving lessons or, or whatever. And they'll, they'll help me through that. 
my whole thing was, and, and I, I came to this conclusion that with my mental health on a daily basis, I get up at ground zero every morning and I look up this gigantic mental mountain every day. I have to climb that mountain to make sure that I can go to sleep that night to wake up and do it all over again every single day. Up here in New Hampshire, we have a mountain called Mount Washington, and it is 6,288 feet. It is home of the world's worst weather, and it is the second highest peak east of the Mississippi. I have it right in my backyard. And I said, you know what? I want help hiking that mountain. And I'm not an avid hiker. Like, I'm, I'm not this guy, like, you know, that will go climb every mountain. It's just not me. But I knew that it was something that was going to be an extreme challenge for me. That's what I wanted to do. I said, the reason why is because if I have to climb a mental mountain every single day, I should not have a, have any issue climbing a real mountain. And Chris said, we'll make it happen. And he did. He had, I think, four, four masked athletes come. And um, I actually, they had talked to me about wearing the mask, climbing the mountain and everything. And I, I said, no, don't even bother. Don't even bother. I'm like, this, this isn't about me where you guys have to help me up because I'm, I'm missing an arm or a leg or something like that. Um, you guys are going to need your oxygen. So, I mean, it's, it's not Denver by any means, but um, you guys are going to need your oxygen and uh, um, let's do it. So we did. We hiked it on uh, August 20th of last year, driven up it because they've got an auto road. I've driven up it. I've ridden a motorcycle up it. They've got a cog railway. So I've taken a train and um, my grandfather's the first one legged man to do it. And he did it without the help of anybody else. He had a, he had a, a cane and a crutch. And he hiked Mount Washington because people said he couldn't. So I said, you know what? I want to hike Mount Washington. So we spent the night that night near the base of Mount Washington. We got up first thing in the morning and we hiked all the way up, had lunch at the top, hiked all the way back down. And it was an eight hour turnaround for us from, you know, from the time that we left the vehicles to the time we got back. And um, it's something I'll, I'll never, ever forget. You know, forever and ever, I'll always be an honoree through OEW. And if there's any other challenges that I want to do, all I have to do is bring it up to them. So one of the challenges that, you know, I wanted to talk to, to somebody about was, you know, this, this other program uh, called the Warrior's Voice, which is why we met, um, is that I want to be able to talk to people about mental health struggles and my personal struggles and how I try to persevere every single day. You know, there, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And no matter how, how bad life has you down, you can find a way out of it. And there are people that are there right with you that will help you out. And Jeremy said, perfect. I'll, I'll see what I can do. And, you know, he connected me with you. And I think he's, he's trying to link me up with some other people to talk to. But I want, want to be able to get out where I can talk to a group of people and, you know, not just stand in front of everybody and just go, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Because at that point, you've got so many eyes staring at you, and I don't like that type of attention, but um, it's a story that needs to be said, and people need to hear it. Why are our veterans' stories and our first responder stories important to hear? Because our veterans and our first responders see the worst things in life, some of them on a daily basis. There are many communities out there where people don't even know what actually goes on inside their city or their town because the police department either does a good job at keeping the criminals at bay or fire department does a good job at, at uh, keeping your houses from burning down or EMS has a good response to make sure that your loved ones don't pass away in your living room or something like that um, or on the side of the road. You call and we show up there as quickly as possible 
and we try to get everything done as quickly as possible to make sure, you know, if you've ever driven by a car scene and there's a, there's a big sheet hanging up somewhere or there's a car that's draped in a tarp, we're not doing it because it keeps the weather out or whatever. We're doing it because we don't want you guys to see it because that's not how you want to see humanity. That's not how you want to see life. If you're driving a soccer with your three kids in the back of the minivan and you, you drive by, you know, a horrific fatal car crash, you don't want your children to see that. But we do every single day. And we will continue to do that every single day because that's what you guys as civilians deserve. What do we need to know about veterans and first responders maybe that we don't know? And how can the average American help out these two communities? The best thing you can do is listen. That's the best thing you can do. You know, the, the VA is screwed up. It always has been. As far as I'm concerned, it probably always will be. And a lot of it is because people want to try this or people want to try that. I have an idea. Talk to your veterans. Find out what you need. Because your veterans will tell you. It's the same thing as a first responder. Again, a lot of it comes down to taxes. And, and right now, with inflation, all that other stuff going on, it, it, it's a really touchy subject. But if a fire department comes to you and says, we need another ambulance, you sh shouldn't question that. I mean, yeah, ask. Well, why? Because the other one is falling apart. It doesn't have updated equipment on board that, that's going to that's gonna help save somebody's life. Police department will look at it and go, you know, we need a little extra money in our budget for radar signs or whatever, so we can we can help monitor traffic. Because, you know, you, you live in a in a town seventy two square miles like like I do, and there's three cops on. There's a lot of roads that are left uncovered when there's only three cops on. But you can have these radar signs that are out there that will let you know, you know, where the speeding is and what hours the speeding is occurring and all that other stuff. So we can try to keep speed down. So that first off, you're happy, your kids are in a safer place, and people aren't driving too fast and crashing and, and either hurting uh, or, or killing themselves or others. There is a motive behind a lot of these things that are good and pure. Um, but you got to listen, you know, and instead of just saying no, 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 you got to find a happy medium somewhere. Somewhere. It, it, it just, it, it takes an ear. It takes that's five minutes. That's all it takes. You know, why, why is the budget increasing? Well, cost of inflation, um, cruiser maintenance is up, you know, gas prices are through the roof. You either want us on the road or you don't. A few years ago that um, there's a town here in New Hampshire that uh, was battling with the local police department. So the police chief parked all the cruisers at the PD and said, all right, we're not going to patrol anymore. If you call us, we'll come out, but we're not out driving around anymore. And that's what had to happen before people are like, um, we could use the cruisers out here, you know, keep the speeders down or, you know, increase response times or whatever. That's what the police chief was trying to tell them before, but nobody wanted to listen. We're the experts in the field. All you have to do is ask, spend five minutes. It's that simple. But somebody that's never done law enforcement before, never done firefighting before, or any, anything in the medical field or e even veterans, if you've never been, been overseas, if you never signed that check, you know, for up to and including your life to this country. You shouldn't sit there and, and dictate why we do what we do or how we do it, because it's not up to the military. It's up to the leaders that are elected by the people that are questioning it anyway. Is there anything that we have not mentioned that you want to bring up? I mean, not really. Uh, I think we covered a, a wide variety of, 
of things. Um, I'm glad. Yeah. Um, my whole thing is, is that I don't know if I'm going to get ridiculed for it or not, but there are bad cops out there. There absolutely are. There's no denying it. But I can assure you that it's a very small fraction of the cops that are actually out there. Please, 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 please support your local first responders. Support your veterans. Do what you can. Sometimes just lending an ear. Sometimes just saying hi is going to change the day. You don't have to come up and thank me for my service. You don't have to buy my coffee for me or whatever. But I, I got to tell you, there's nothing that gets me warm and fuzzy more than somebody that just tells me to have a good day. Be safe out there. And sometimes that's all it takes. You never know what lives you can change by just saying hello with a smile. Where can we find you on social media? So I have, uh, I have a TikTok account. It's, uh, it's Canine Pharaoh. It's A and the number nine, F-E-R-O underscore and underscore Sean, S-E-A-N. Um, and I also have uh, an Instagram account, which is just uh, official Canine Pharaoh. I love how you put the dog first in both of those. You're not even mentioned in the second. <laughs> nope. Nope. It's, it's all about my dog. It's all about my dog. Sean, what does America mean to you? Freedom and opportunity. We're the most free country in the world still. Um, you know, if you want to pack the car and drive six states away, no one's going to question it. No one's going to care. You know, you want to make a phone call. You want to stay up late at night. You know, you have the ability to do that. You know, you can talk to anybody you want on the street. There are places out there where you don't have the freedom to do that. You might talk to the wrong person. You're going to end up dead. Uh, as far as opportunity goes, you can do whatever you want to do here in this country. You want to be a police officer? You can be a police officer. You want to be, you know, a crane operator? Go be a crane operator. We have the opportunity. You know, we've got some of the best schools in the world. We've got some of the best hospitals in the world. Um, there's tons of opportunity here. All you have to do is just seek it. Seek it and do it. Thank you for sharing your American story with us. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com for social media links, patriotic merchandise, and to sign up for the We the People newsletter. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 